Thanks so much, Siobhan. Uh, and thank you to all of you for coming out on what's a rather rainy and wet uh, afternoon, but hopefully you're nice and drying off here in the Academy. I wanted to just make a few remarks. Um, my colleague Peter Gray is going to be delivering the bulk of today's lecture, but I wanted to talk a little bit about its gestation, where it came from, and what were some of our motivations for undertaking this project uh, to begin with. So I was actually checking my email over the weekend and realized it was almost exactly a year ago today that we were invited by the embassy uh, to take part in creating this exhibition. And the invitation came to collaborate, which we readily accepted. As Siobhan mentioned, both Peter and I are scholars who are active in the field of famine studies. Uh, Peter is one of the primary political historians of the famine over the past three decades, and myself as an expert on its visual culture and commemoration. And prior to taking this project on, Paul Strzelewski would have been a figure that who would have been known to us, not least because of his rather unique position as a Polish humanitarian active during the years of Ireland's worst, or some of the Ireland's worst years of suffering. As many of you will know, a great deal of famine commemoration has taken place over the last number of decades. But we were, of course, aware that Strzelewski's was a name that was rather unyet, or that was not really known to a wider public. And so we jumped at the chance to uh, work with the embassy to bring to light Strzelewski's impressive contributions to famine relief, and to also place them in the context of his wider life and activities, and within the context of famine history itself. We often think about Polish migration as if it's a new phenomenon, but Strzelewski's story reminds us of the long-standing and deep connections between the two countries, and the dual Polish and Irish experiences of colonialization, of shifting borders, and the formulation of modern nation-states offer much by way of historical comparisons. But I think almost perhaps more significantly, the transnational figure of Strzelewski reminds us of a common humanity, and he represents what's possible when efficiency, ingenuity, but above all, empathy converge in the face of a crisis. And it's a deep privilege for us to share his story with you here today. It's particularly resonant for both Peter and myself that this exhibition has opened here at the Academy. Uh, Peter himself is a full member of the Royal Irish Academy, and I sit here on the Historical Studies Committee of the Academy representing art history. And the embassy's ambition that Strzelewski's story can reach a wider public mirrors the aims of the Academy itself which is to promote and support academic scholarship and to provide a leading independent forum for research in the humanities. So we're very grateful for the Academy for hosting both the exhibition and the lecture here today. I'd also like to thank Nikola Sakowski Moroni and Galia Chimiak for the initial invitation from the embassy to work on the exhibition and all of their hard work in seeing it through to completion over many months. And our thanks also to Jer Garland, who's the designer who produced the exhibition and, and who created all of the visual materials, both the exhibition itself and the publication so brilliantly. And so now I'd like to hand over to my colleague, uh, Peter Gray, who will fill in more of the detail and the background around Strzelewski and just why he's such an interesting and fascinating uh, figure uh, for you today. I'll bypass the introduction because I think Siobhan has already introduced his many publications, um, but I'm sure hopefully you'll enjoy both the, the presentation and also then what Peter has to say about Strzelewski himself. And we'll have about 10 minutes of Q&A at the end of the presentation. So thank you and over to Peter. So uh, thank you, Emily, and thank you all uh, very much for coming. The, the, as uh, you already know, the topic of today's talk is uh, Count Paul Strzelecki, po the Polish explorer and scientist who volunteered uh, to work in Ireland to combat raging famine 
over a three-year period between uh, early 1847 um, and the autumn of 1849, with the resources initially granted to him by the British Relief Association, the charity he represented for the first two years of that period, and then he returned again uh, with charity that he, he charitable funds he'd raised himself in 1849. Arriving in Ireland in January 1847, he was appalled by the conditions he witnessed uh, in Mayo and the surrounding counties. Later taking up the role uh, of central representative of the British Relief Association in Dublin, he turned his despair into action in order to, to alleviate the critical situation of, of famished uh, Irish families and especially uh, the children uh, uh, of the poor in the western counties. And he developed a visionary and exceptionally effective mode of assistance, feeding starving children directly through the schools, essentially giving them free school meals. He extended food ration, uh, daily food rations to school children across the most famine-stricken western part of the island, um, while also distributing clothing and promoting basic hygiene. And this was widely praised by contemporaries. But really, the, the topic of, of my talk today is, is to explain how a Polish count came to be in Ireland in 1847, and what were his motivations, and what made possible his intervention. So we'll start with, with who he was and where he came from. He was uh, born uh, Pavel in, in Polish, uh, Paul, as he later anglicized his name, uh, Edmund Strzelecki. Uh, he was born in 1797 in the village of Gluzina, uh, which is near Poznan, uh, in what was then Prussian-occupied Western Poland. His family was from the minor Polish gentry, uh, holding a small estate in the district. They were uh, comfortable, but uh, certainly not uh, a particularly wealthy family. You can see uh, old photographs of the family uh, house here before it was, it was destroyed during the Second World War. Uh, he inherited the right to use the title Count uh, from uh, his father, but tended not to use that. In many ways, the, the term Count was used about him uh, rather than used uh, by he himself. He was uh, educated in Warsaw, uh, appears to have spent a brief time in the military, uh, and then uh, took up employment as a land agent um, for a very wealthy uh, a Polish landowner, uh, Prince uh, Francis Sapia. Uh, in Lithuania, and uh, on the eastern side of what was then Poland, and this occupation seems to have taught him uh, essential or essential lessons about agricultural management and land law. And by his own account, he was successful in returning the prince's estates to profitability. He wrote that I removed the scum, that is, the the the, the, the kind of those who were who were uh, impeding the development of the estate. I reorganized the administration of the estates, thwarted the plots of the creditors, restored the, uh, 10,000 peasants, paid their debts and re-established their credit, and triumphed where only humiliation awaited them. So he had a very high opinion of his own abilities and his, uh, and his understanding uh, of uh, how to run an agrarian estate. But the experience ended in disaster when the personal animosity of the prince's son and heir uh, led to ruinous lawsuits being filed against Strzelecki and ultimately to his dismissal from the post in 1829. Um, uh, on top of this setback, uh, a love affair with Adina Turno, the daughter, daughter of an affluent uh, neighbouring landowner, ended in rejection by her family. Essentially, his family was seen as, as, as too lowly in the scale of nobility, not wealthy enough. 
uh, and although the couple were to maintain a clandestine personal correspondence over four decades, and much of what we know about him uh, comes from the survi surviving letters that he wrote back to her, uh, uh, which, which were preserved in Poland. So although they kept up this correspondence, uh, they, uh, they, and they did eventually meet again in the 1860s, they, they never married. Frustrated and embittered by his treatment by the Polish land elite, Paul Strzelecki decided to leave uh, his homeland and to seek his fortune in the wider world. Writing to Adina Turno in 1840, he recalled that the Sapia affair, that is his dismissal from his job, uh, is but one example of all that I suffered in Poland. And yet that episode in my life, I find flattering to my ego. Luckily, I, have, I had peace of mind, good health, and an independent spirit. So this is a very much a kind of young man on the make who has had a significant setback, but who believes that he has something to offer the world and to gain from, from traveling uh, throughout the world. And that's precisely what he does. This is a photograph of him from uh, about 1840 when he was in Australia. So how did he come to, to be in Australia? His reasons for leaving Poland are, were thus personal and professional rather than political. Uh, and he does not appear to have been directly involved in nationalist politics at home or abroad. Nevertheless, throughout his life, he retained a deep sense of Polish identity and was supportive of political refugees, especially after many flee from Poland uh, after the failed rebellion in 1830-1831, rebellion against Russian rule. He idolized Tadeusz Kosciuszko, uh, um, the general and statesman who had served under George Washington in America and led the Polish national uprising in 1794 against Russian occupation. And like many European emigres of his era, Strzelecki found refuge in and developed a strong attachment to Britain. He traveled widely on the continent and then in England and Scotland, although he doesn't seem to uh, have visited Ireland uh, before the 1840s and pursued his interests in geology, metallurgy, and agronomy. In some ways, he becomes a kind of self-taught uh, scientist, making close observations of what he saw. It's likely that he, that he received a small income from his family's Polish estates, but he made his way in the world essentially through his skills uh, as a self-taught scientist, uh, as well as his personal charm, quick wits, and perhaps some respect for his inherited title. In 1834, at the age of 37, uh, he left England on a world tour which would last 10 years. Curiosity and a desire uh, to ex extend his practical experience took him first to the US and Canada, and then uh, to the West Indies, South America and Mexico, and in 1838-39 across the Pacific Ocean to Polynesia, New Zealand and then Australia. And much of his travel was subsidized by acting as uh, an unpaid scientific advisor and collector on Royal Naval ships, a little bit like Charles Darwin, uh, who had filled a similar role on the Beagle uh, about five years previously. As he traveled, he collected geological specimens, which he then uh, sold on to, to museums to help supplement his income. In 1841-42, he actually traveled on, on the Beagle, uh, Darwin's old ship, uh, and its captain, Lord Stokes, recalled him as a most delightful man to converse with, uh, with a strongly marked foreign accent. So these travels expanded not only his scientific and practical experience, but also his moral consciousness, witnessing in early 1836 a slave ship captured uh, by the Royal Navy off the coast uh, of Brazil at Rio de Janeiro, 
Uh, Brazil was then still engaged in the slave trade, although it was illegal in, in Britain and the United States. This led him to denounce the barbarity and crimes of his fellow Europeans against their fellow men. He was also angered by witnessing the murder of native Indians in Buenos Aires in the same year. And continuing his journey, journey, he elsewhere investigated with equal enthusiasm agronomy on the haciendas of the Mexican province of Sonora, the volcanic geology of Mount Kilauea on Hawaii, and the linguistic anthropology of the islands of Polynesia. His reputation for polymathic uh, knowledge, good company, and taste for adventure placed him in good stead when he arrived at Sydney in New South Wales, uh, then of course British colony, uh, in April 1839. Eager to explore and survey the interior of the continent, he found official and private backing and traversed first the Blue Mountains, uh, where he named a mountain after Adina Turno, uh, uh, interestingly enough, and then uh, the country south of Sydney and into the interior of what later became the state of Victoria, uh, and which he named Gippsland after the governor of New South Wales. It is, his discovery of gold in the mountains was, however, suppressed to avoid the perceived dangers of a gold rush. There's, of course, a gold rush in Australia, Australia rather later. Ascending Australia's highest peak, he named it Mount Kosciuszko, after the hero of Polish independence. So again, we can see this, uh, this, this kind of sense of Polish national identity remaining strong. A name, he said, which is dear to every Pole, to every human, and to every friend of freedom and honor. Uh, and he wrote back to Adina Turno in, in Poland, here, uh, sending her a dried flower from the mountain. Here's a flower from Mount Kosciuszko, the first in the new world bearing a Polish name. I believe you will be the first Polish woman to have a flower from that mountain. Let it remind you forever of freedom, patriotism, uh, and love. Right, kind of romantic sentiments. It's kind of uh, characteristic of the man. These expeditions were taken at some personal risk. Uh, again, something which becomes a characteristic of his personality. He and his party became bogged down in thick bush uh, and themselves nearly starved uh, before finding their, they had to eat uh, koalas, I should point out at this point, to keep alive, themselves nearly starved um, before finding their way to the settlement uh, at Melbourne. But his travels in New South Wales and then later in Van Diemen's land, now Tasmania, where he became very friendly with the governor, Sir John Franklin, and his wife, uh, made him an acknowledged expert on Australian geology, topography, and natural history. Um, and when he returns to, to London in 1845, he publishes a, a very important scientific book on the subject. This is a, an extract, a, a kind of geological map that he produced, uh, which, as you can see, full, a fold-out from that, that uh, book on, uh, on uh, 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 New South Wales and, and uh, Van Diemen's land. So he, although he thought uh, highly of the administration of the colonies and the prospects of British and Irish settlers there, and indeed his surveys paved the way for colonial expansion, he also took an anthropological, indeed highly sympathetic interest in this, the, the condition of the Aboriginal peoples uh, of Australia. He was disturbed by their declining numbers and loss of territory to colonization, and he criticized directly the British government's treatment of the dispossessed natives. And you can see this is a, a chapter a whole chapter on his book, again, his 1845 book, on the condition of the Aboriginal peoples with, uh, with sketches, uh, uh, engraved, uh, which are engraved into the book. Speaking on their behalf, uh, in his book, he urged the government to reserve them good land and to protect them 
protect those who remained and their distinct way of life. He says on their behalf, leave us our habits and our customs. Do not embitter the days that are now in, in store for us by constraining us to obey yours, your, that is your customs. Our fields and forests were once furnished uh, with abundance of vegetable and animal food. Now They now yield us no more. They and their produce are yours. You prosper in our native soil and we are starving. So we see kind of interest in, in the condition of starving people and had a deep sympathy with it uh, long before he arrives in Ireland in the 1840s. Now, Stradesky uh, left Australia to return to Britain in 1843, obviously a journey which then took many months uh, at that time. Ireland was approaching a catastrophe. The country was acutely vulnerable to economic crisis, subject to a distant uh, and uh, often neglectful, if not uh, openly hostile, government in London, and with a dense rural population, population living in conditions which Strelecki was later to describe as worse than those of the Russian peasantry. The first failure of the potato crop, the staple food of millions of the rural poor, came in September 1845, although this uh, provoked only a limited state and charitable response. The second potato failure, in the summer of 1846, which was almost total, brought the country to a level of destitution and starvation unprecedented in living memory. And this was brought home to many outside Ireland by newspaper coverage of the onset of mass mortality in late 1846, by desperate appeals for help from, the, from clergy and philanthropists, many of whom toured Ireland uh, and then came back and gave lectures about what was happening in, in England. Uh, and indeed, the Illustrated London News, very famously Illustrated London News, you can see some images here from that newspaper. It's graphic portrayal of the distress in the Skibbereen district of West Cork in early 1847, produced by the, the Cork artist uh, uh, James Mahoney, give visual impact to these accounts. So after a, a, perhaps a, a kind of in the first year, uh, a, a lack of, of knowledge or interest in about, what's about what's happening in Ireland, in Britain, by late, late 1846, early 1847, the newspapers are full of very graphic uh, textual and, and then visual uh, accounts of, of mass, mass hunger and, uh, and death. Now the government's public response to this crisis relied, as we know, initially mostly on public work schemes, which very rapidly uh, uh, fall into, into a chaotic state in the winter of 1846-47. As we know, the government also fails to intervene uh, in, in the food trade. By later 1846, it was abandoning any interference in the private market in food, imposing harsher work tests on the labouring poor, and obliging landowners to meet more of the costs of, of relief. With large parts of Ireland unable to afford this and the public works failing to keep the people alive as food prices soared and fever epidemic spread, it was left to private charity to intervene. Uh, and uh, again, as is well known, the Society of Friends, the Quakers, were the first body to, to uh, publicise and respond uh, on a large scale to Irish distress with direct charitable action uh, in late 1846 and in the year following. But the Quakers were followed by other groups, and it's, it's the other group that Strelecki becomes involved with that I want to talk about uh, now. So one of the leading private charities to emerge was the British Association for the Relief of Distress in Ireland and the Highlands of Scotland. It was established uh, by a group of, of bankers in the city of London, on the 1st of January 1847, bankers that included uh, leading uh, uh, Jewish 
uh, financier Lionel de, de Rothschild, um, Thomas Baring, and Samuel Jones Lloyd, who became its, the society's chair. The uh, Bridge Relief Association set out its objectives in its prospectus, information having been received of the most distressing character and of undoubted credibility of the rapid progress of famine and utter destitution in many remote uh, parishes of Ireland and Scotland, in which there are but few families who can be considered as the resident gentry and who are therefore exposed to urgent and overpowering demands for the smallest supplies of the necessaries of life by the famishing population to an extent far exceeding any means within their power. It has been determined, in dependence with God's blessing, to form a committee in London for the purpose of aiding efforts made to relieve the multitudes who are suffering under the present awful calamity. Victorians were, were very prolix in their, in their prose. But you, you can see what, what, you know, what the objective uh, of this society is. The British Relief Association received the patronage of, of Queen Victoria, who donated £2,000 to it, which is in, in modern money uh, somewhere around £174,000 today, along with other members of the royal family and the government. And with this kind of, if you like, official uh, recognition, it rapidly grew into the largest and most well-funded relief body for Ireland, uh, although, well, uh, as you can tell by the title, uh, a proportion in the end, one-sixth of its income was reserved for the parallel but much less severe crisis in the Scottish Highlands. British Association received many donations from abroad, including uh, £1,000 uh, or roughly £87,000 today from uh, the Sultan, Sultan Abdul Majid uh, I of Turkey, along with uh, many smaller donations from abroad. Uh, but most of its money was raised in uh, England, and Scot England, Scotland and Wales. Uh, collections were made uh, at British and Irish church doors under a uh, for the fund under what was called the Queen's Letter, which is a kind of letter issued to all the Anglican clergy uh, and uh, Church of Scotland clergy in Scotland uh, to, be, to be read from, from pulpits to raise money for charity, and which was also then taken up by many of the nonconformist clergy and indeed uh, uh, by the rabbis in Jewish synagogues uh, as well. Not so much by the Quakers and the Catholics who had their own relief, had their own relief systems and didn't really participate in, in, this, uh, in this exercise. This was followed by the National Fast Day uh, appeal in March 1847. This is an image on the left here from the uh, Illustrated London News. Uh, you can see the kind of you know, unionist imagery there, England, Scotland and Ireland uh, together in prayer, surrounded by a praying con uh, congregation, uh, 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 beseeching God to have mercy and to take away the, uh, the horrors of, of famine. Uh, and collections were made at church or church doors uh, as people filed out of these special services held on the fast day. So in total, something around £470,000 in 1847 values, or about £41 million in modern value, was raised for this organisation, the British Relief Association, in 1847, from in a mixture of large uh, and often very small contributions, often from very poor members of, of society. And there are reasons why people uh, did contribute to this collection. Um, some of it comes out of perhaps a, a, the, the kind of shock value of, of reading those newspaper accounts, seeing those images in the Illustrated London News or, or uh, further dissemination of them. Um, some of it arrives, arises um, 
from, uh, from religious motivations, from the cler clergy's direction, uh, in believing, telling people it was their religious duty to aid the afflicted. Although there was also uh, very strongly in many of the sermons a reciprocal expectation that the Irish needed to demonstrate gratitude and to change their behavior in return uh, for British generosity. Uh, there's also an element of fashionability, people copying what the, the Queen and the, uh, the royal family do. This uh, charitable moment, which is quite important in early 1847, however, doesn't last. An attempt to carry out further uh, significant charitable collections for Ireland in, in October 1847, and then again in the subsequent years, fall away, and indeed there's a significant degree of hostility. So there's a kind of brief charitable moment uh, in early 1847. Perhaps there's an element of famine fatigue uh, creeps in afterwards. Okay, so we have the British Relief Association now having gathered a large amount of money to spend principally in Ireland, to some extent also in Scotland, but how is it going to do it? It's starting to receive many uh, requests and, and, and uh, calls from Ireland, but it doesn't, it doesn't have any agency on the ground and it doesn't really know what to do with its money. So this is where the voluntary agents uh, come in. Uh, so Strelecki, as I mentioned, returned to London in 1843, published his book on the physical description of uh, New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land in 1845, wins a, Ge a Royal Geographical Society gold medal for it, but doesn't really have, uh, doesn't really have a job uh, after that. He becomes close, however, to Samuel Jones Lloyd, this banker who'd been involved in setting up the British Relief Association and who has an interest in, in Australia and Australian colonization. And I think it's, it's probably through Jones Lloyd that uh, Strelecki finds out about the work of the committee and then decides to offer his services to it as an unpaid agent in Ireland on the 20th of January 1847. We don't have any record of why precisely Strelecki volunteered. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us that. But it's likely his motivations were a mixture uh, of a desire to do something useful for his new country. He'd just been, received British uh, uh, naturalization, become a, a British subject in 1845. But also, given what we know of his character and his interest in, uh, in sufferings of, of, of peoples and uh, he'd come across on his travels, it's likely also that he feels a strong humanitarian motivation to do something uh, in response to what he's reading about happening in Ireland. So he offers his services on the 20th of January uh, and was recommended by Jones Lloyd as a Polish gentleman of extensive travel. And two days later, uh, he's appointed by the committee as their agent for the western counties of Donegal, uh, Mayo and Sligo. Uh, the, the map here on the left-hand side, this is taken from the uh, published uh, accounts of the British Relief Association published in 1849. It's a color-coded map there uh, of the different relief districts uh, which they set up. Initially, Strelecki's district is the yellow one of Mayo, but also orange in the county Sligo and green up in Donegal as well. Later on, some additional agents are, are, uh, are volunteer their services and they, they come over to assist them. But he's the first one on the ground and the one who established, established in some ways the principles about how the organization should operate. So within a week, uh, he finds himself uh, in, in Westport on the coast of Mayo, which he establishes as his headquarters. 
um, and then begins to travel around to get a sense of what exactly is happening. He's in Carrick-on-Shannon in late January, where he finds the workhouse and hospital crowded with half-naked and emaciated men, women and children, prey to dysentery and fever, which terminated fatally. I mean, you can get a, a real sense from the dispatches he's writing back to London of his shock at the, the sheer scale and the intensity of the suffering that he witnesses. Uh, writing uh, to them uh, in mid-March from Westport, he says, no pen can describe the distress with which I am surrounded. It, is, it has actually reached such a degree of lamentable extremes that it becomes above the power of exaggeration and misrepresentation. Uh, this is very much answering claims from some newspapers that, that there's exaggeration coming from Ireland. He's saying this is just not possible if you come here and witness it. You may now believe uh, anything you hear and read because what I actually see surpasses what I ever read of past and present calamities. So what does he do then? In many places, uh, he complained of the inefficiency of the local relief committees and the disorder and moral disorganization amongst the gentry and the landowners whose failure to fulfill their responsibilities were worsening the fate of the poor. He soon identified, identified Bell Mullet and the wider barony of Eris in um, northwest Mayo as a district that would require a particular attention due to its remoteness and acute impoverishment. He wrote from Belmullet on the 10th of February, here I have found generally the most melancholy and deplorable destitution. The nature of that destitution is greatly increased by local circumstances, a population of 25,000 souls spread over an area of 400 square miles without a town commerce or industry. Is incumbent on those of the poor who are employed in public works uh, to the north, east, and south, and who receive wages to walk 20 or 30 miles for the purchase of food, which circumstance, considering the distance and severity of the weather, is contributing to its share towards exhaust the exhaustion of men's strength as well as their time. So in consequence, he begins the process of establishing soup kitchens using the British Relief Association's money and food supplies to directly feed the people where relief committees are, are not operating. Where relief committees are operating, then he's supplying them uh, with, uh, with food supplies uh, and money, whether or not uh, he's directly establishing soup kitchens. And this work is taken over uh, by um, MJ Higgins, uh, an Irishman who, who, who is brought in and works as kind of Stratsky's assistant, working with specific responsibility for Bell Mullet and its, its district. So the committee went on to appoint a number of other volunteer agents for different areas. Uh, and Stratsky's own district was, was eventually reduced just to County Mayo. But none was to serve as long in Ireland as he did or to demonstrate such commitment to the relief campaign and willingness to act on his own initiative. The work of the association in Ireland is thus rightly associated more with him than with any other individual. Strzelecki and his fellow district agents were expected to operate within the rules set by the London Committee. These stated that assistance should be in food but not in money, should be delivered via local relief committees and other charities rather than to individuals, and to go exclusively to those unable to help themselves. However, the sheer scale of the distress absence of effective relief committees in Western districts, and the failures of the failure of the government's public works relief scheme led him to interpret these rules as widely as he could. And if you read the, the correspondence which he writes back to London, he's constantly asking for more money and more supplies uh, to, to uh, fulfill the needs of, of, of his district. He'd arrived in Connacht during the devastating famine winter of 1847, 
when the sheer scale of distress, rampant fever epidemic and absence of effective relief committees plunged Western districts into yet deeper crisis. The sudden closure of the government's public work, uh, work schemes in March without a new relief system in place threw the poor yet more onto the charitable resources, uh, onto these charitable resources given the inadequacy of the under-resourced and unprepared poor law system. You know, I frequently witnessed corpses lying unburied in the streets and toured the western districts, uh, recruiting the poor law inspectors to assist him and making grants of food aid and money to the, to the maximum allowed. Um, and his work in this phase uh, in uh, early 1847 was uh, praised by many of the people who worked with him. Richard Lynch, who, who uh, was a um, poor law inspector uh, in, in Westport, uh, wrote um, uh, of him uh, that I have pleasure in bearing my testimony to, uh, to what is now so generally acknowledged that had it not been for your timely interference in this as well as the other unions of the west of Ireland, thousands must have fallen victim to famine and disease. So there's someone who's again kind of witnessing what Strzelecki is doing and, and, and uh, expressing his opinion that he's made a real difference. Now, during the, the summer of 1847, the government belatedly uh, catches up, if you like, with charitable activity and starts to establish its own soup kitchen relief funds. And during that period, Strzelecki uh, kind of winds down the, the work of the British Relief Association in the district in the belief that if the government and the taxpayer is going to do this, the British Relief Association should be saving its money for what he foresees as being a further year of famine and distress. He's under no illusions that the famine will not end in the summer of 1847. Many other people are under that illusion or prepared to, to share that illusion. And indeed, many of the, most of the other, in fact, all of the other voluntary relief uh, assist, uh, agents go home in the summer of 1847. Strzelecki chooses to stay in Ireland, but changes his role. So from the summer of 1847, he, is, he, is now, he now serves as the central agent for Ireland, based uh, at Reynolds Hotel in Dublin. And this was despite suffering a severe bout of typhus fever that he'd contracted at Westport, and from which uh, it took him some time to recover. Typhus is, is a, a disease which is, is carried by, by lice, uh, and many relief uh, officials, agents, uh, clergy, indeed, contracted as a consequence of coming into direct physical contact with the poor uh, during the Great Famine. Uh, many of them die, including the, the, the Protestant uh, rector of, of Westport in the time that Strzelecki uh, was there. He recovers but does suffer from some long-term consequences of this bout. So taking control of uh, island-wide operations of the association, he now directed 40 military and naval officers, uh, reserve officers, uh, who had been allocated to assist him uh, uh, working in the provinces. He followed the example of the Quakers in distributing turnip seed to Mayo cottiers, which he hoped would be the foundation of the regeneration of this country uh, by offering an alternative crop to the tainted potato. But he reserved most of the funds still in the uh, in the account of the British Relief Association, as I said, for what he expected, uh, the new crisis that would follow the closure of the government soup kitchens, which was widely uh, trailed by, by government sources. A, a period in which he feared the people will be left to themselves. And indeed, this is precisely what happens. 
Uh, in London, Charles Trevelyan, uh, System Tax Secretary to the Treasury, de facto direct, director of Irish Relief Policy, put pressure on the British Relief Association to assist his new strategy of making Ireland reliant solely on the poor law to deal with distress, requesting that they use their remaining charitable funds to provide outdoor relief in food outside the workhouses in the distressed unions that initially designated as 22 Western Unions, running down the Western seaboard from Glenties and Donegal in the north, the Skibbereen in, in West Cork in the south. Strelitzky was expected by the committee to implement this policy of supporting the poor law, but he never believed this would be sufficient. Um, indeed, he recognizes that the, the relying on the poor law, and particularly on the workhouses, uh, would be detrimental in particular to one group uh, of, the, of the society of the West, and that is the, the children of the West. He recognized that children were amongst the most vulnerable uh, group of society to the dangers of famine, um, uh, and that they should not, in his view, be forced into workhouses where, the, uh, where this could be prevented. He had previously tested the innovative idea of feeding children through schools in Westport, uh, where he had provisioned 1,300 boys and girls in the spring of 1847 with the cooperation of the local Catholic and Protestant clergy, and the trifling, at the trifling daily cost, he said, of a third of a penny per head. And he now urged the London Committee to extend this mode of aid to all the impoverished unions in the west of Ireland. He writes to them, impressed with the impending evils of destitution in the approaching winter and with the utter inability of the poor law provision to afford all that due protection and relief which the destitute children deserved, further conscious of the injustice and mischief of applying to their case either the workhouse test or the vagrant act, I have begged of you that I be allowed to extend to other equally distressed districts in Ireland the system of separate relief which so well answered in Westport. So he stressed to them the humanitarian necessity of relieving the helpless children who in the general run and scramble for food have been left behind hungry by the way, and the desirability of advancing their education and keeping whole families out of the workhouse by removing parents' anxieties for their children uh, and freeing them to find work where possible, that is, the, the, the parents. He assured the committee that he had consulted clergy of all denominations and had been assured that such essential aid would not be regarded as being associated with what others were then calling superism. Impressed by these arguments, the committee agreed to Strelecki's requests that food and clothing uh, uh, be, be uh, allocated to this, this relief scheme. And he set to work in October 1847, eventually extending the system over 27 Western Perlaw unions and reporting that it was proving very popular. By the end of the year, 58,000, and by March 1848, nearly 200,000 children were receiving free meals in national, Catholic, and other schools, mostly in the form of rye bread, which he believed would, be perm would permanently benefit uh, the Irish diets. And he wanted to have that bread locally baked and the skills of, of, of baking extended uh, in, in uh, communities in the West. The provision of clothing also, he insisted, was equally important, as in some districts, schools were not attended due to the utter nakedness of the children as much as from the need to beg for food. Local production of clothing would, again, he also hoped, promote employment, uh, particularly for, for women. There was also some controversy. There was some controversy over the exclusion of some missionary schools uh, in Ackle, for example. But overall, there seems to have been wide consensus and support 
for this initiative. A report from Skibbereen in December 1847 noted that people were in a much better spirit uh, as a consequence and that the Catholic clergy were now optimistic uh, for the future uh, after the implementation of the school feeding system there. Strzelecki's co-workers were convinced that his intervention had saved many lives. Captain Hotham of the Royal Navy, uh, uh, a Perlaw inspector, wrote from Tralee in early 1848, it's a great comfort to see so many little children happy and healthy amidst the dreadful desolation around them. And I sincerely wished in my heart that the, the subscribers to the association fund could witness the real good, almost unmixed with evil, that it, it has caused. However, the absence, in the absence of any further substantial charitable collections, the British Relief Association started to run out of money in spring 1848. Um, the government uh, gives a, a small subvention to keep the, the, chilled, the school uh, feeding system going until uh, the harvest, but then it ceases. So this, this great work that Strzelecki has set up, and which he hopes the government will continue, now that charitable funds have run out, unfortunately uh, ceases to, to operate. Uh, despite the fact of another potato failure and another year of famine descending on the West uh, from the autumn of 1848. So Strzelecki is uh, recalled by the British Relief Association in July 1848 as its money essentially has run out. Its final work lauded his work as ensuring a real and permanent good has been affected amongst the poor and amongst the rising generation more especially. But as I say, this proved premature uh, given the further potato failure in autumn 1848. But to his great credit, despite now no longer having the British Relief Association money to spend, Strzelecki recognizes the continuing crisis and returns to Ireland personally in June to September 1849 after having raised a large uh, additional fund through his own personal efforts in England. He travels 2,700 miles uh, across Connaught and Munster in the summer of that year, distributing a further £6,400, about half a million today, in charitable aid that he had raised himself through his personal advocacy. So there are limits to what one man can do, but I think it's fair to say that Strzelecki pushes these as far as he can. So Strzelecki's relief work in Ireland, I think, can rightly be described as heroic. We should be careful not to idealize him. He's, he's a man who has many of the conventional economic ideas uh, of, his, of his era, who believes Irish agriculture uh, must be made more efficient. He's in favor of the government's Encumbered Estates Act of 1849, for example. But crucially, when he gives evidence before a parliamentary uh, um, a committee of inquiry into the Irish Poor Laws in May 1849, he insists that despite all these reforms and changes being necessary, humanitarianism must take priority over everything else. So in, um, he warns also about the consequences of evictions and the, the, the social catastrophe that evictions will further bring to Ireland. So he, he tells the committee Far from being an ordinary case, that is the continuing famine in Ireland, it's an extraordinary one, an unparalleled case, an exceptional case. The difficulties and distresses of 1848 and 1849 are mere consequences, a continuation of the mel melancholy events of 1846. The famine is not over, he's saying. 
As such, they ought to be dealt with by public opinion and parliament. So charity is not enough. Government has to intervene as well. Otherwise, the evils will accumulate and become an inveterate sore and a a disgrace to a civilized country. The very first thing which it is the duty of the public to look to is that the immediate distress should be relieved, that the people of the British Empire, so long as the empire possesses any means, should not be allowed to die from starvation. You cannot reason in an abstract way when you see men dying in the streets. So this is very much a criticism of the government turning its back in these later years of famine and also perhaps public opinion turning its back uh, on, on continuing starvation in Ireland. Okay, so let me let me finish just by uh, c- c- concluding on the the, the life very briefly. Afterwards, he's praised for his, his action. Uh, he is awarded the uh, honorific role of commander of the Order of the Bath in 1848. Um, he still suffers from the disease that he had uh, picked up in Ireland that continues to affect his health at, at least until 1851. Um, in the wake of that, he continues to play a role. He's obviously continues to have an interest in scientific affairs, but he continues to, to be interested in philanthropic causes. Uh, he had been impressed when he was in Australia by the improving condition of the Irish immigrants that he'd seen there. In the 1850s, he supports uh, an assisted emigration scheme uh, led by the, the, the uh, Scottish philanthropist Caroline Chisholm, the Family Colonisation Loan Society, to promote further Irish and indeed British immigration to Australia. In 1855, shocked again, perhaps by what he's reading in the newspapers about the suffering of soldiers in the Crimean War, he travels to the Crimea, uh, uh, establishes uh, um, uh, relief activity to help the condition of soldiers, becomes very friendly with Florence Nightingale, of course, who is developing uh, nursing there. And then finally, in 1867, he finally meets Adina Turno again, with whom he corresponded for many years, uh, but uh, they, they never marry. So he dies of cancer, this very late uh, uh, caricature image of him by, uh, by his friend Richard Doyle, uh, who'd done a lot of uh, work for, for Punch earlier on. Uh, obviously, they were close friends, very, he has a sense of very convivial uh, and open personality from, from these sketches. He dies uh, of cancer in London in 1873 at the age of 76. His remains were, uh, he was buried, he he insists that there should be no memorial to him, he's perhaps a very humble man, he has his papers destroyed. Uh, um, Finally, his his remains are relocated uh, to uh, the Polish city of Poznan, uh, the capital of the region from which he was originally from in 1997. So just very, very briefly to finish then. So here we have a man who, who very modestly asks that he, that he shouldn't be remembered, that his paper should be burned, buried without a tombstone. But he is remembered, particularly in Australia, where his tours of exploration did so much to map the interior of the continent, where, and where a number of geographical features still bear his name. He's honored in Poland, uh, as an emigre who did much to connect that country with the wider world. But perhaps above all, he deserves to be remembered uh, in Ireland for his charitable, charitable work in conditions of social catastrophe and official indifference to bring aid to the afflicted poor and especially the children of the West, many thousands of whom were kept alive through his personal intervention. He'd written in October 1847, my whole sympathy is with the poor children. And his record of action bears that out. 
His convictions and actions distinguish him, I think, as one of the great humanitarians of the 19th century. So thank you very much.